City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Production Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman. And I'm Doug Leeds. We're the chairs of the American Theatre Wing, and today we're at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. For 30 years, our working in the theatre seminars have shown you the passion and dedication of the creators of this art form. Writers, directors, composers, actors, you could go on and on. They will tell you the choices they made the paths they took to bring them to where they are today. We will speak with the artists of Caroline or Change, a, a new musical that began its life as an opera, then went on to the public theater, and now is on Broadway, where it is receiving a standing ovation every night. It is my great pleasure to now introduce the moderator of this discussion, Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Doug, and welcome to everyone. Uh, as Doug mentioned, Carolina Change became one of the most talked about shows of the theatrical season when it began at the Public Theater earlier this season. It has now moved to Broadway, and we're very pleased to bring you part of the creative and performing team that brings this extraordinary work to life now eight nights a week, hopefully for a long time to come. Beginning on my right, Hope Clark, choreographer of the production. Tanya Pinkins, who plays the title role of Caroline, Tony Kushner, who wrote the book and the music, and to, I'm sorry, I misspoke, the book and the lyrics. Oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> secret is out. Uh, Janine Tesori. Who, who wrote Angels in America. <laughs> <laughs> who wrote the music, and Vianne Cox, who plays Rose. Welcome to all of you. Uh, my first question is a very simple one for Tony. As a playwright of great acclaim, why this story as a musical? Um, I don't have a particularly great answer for that. I mean, I think uh, probably partly it was, uh, it's a story that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's loosely autobiographical. It takes place in the town that I grew up in, uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I'm roughly the same. I'm a year older than the little boy uh, in the play. He's seven, in, uh, eight in 1963, and I was nine, or I was seven, so I'm a year younger. Anyway, <laughs> math has never been my long shot. Um, uh, and uh, I wanted to do it for a long time, and I, hadn't, I thought I would know when the right moment came. Um, I think that uh, the idea of doing it as a musical uh, is what gave me uh, permission to start writing it, possibly in part because I grew up in a house with a lot of music. My parents were both uh, classical musicians. My father's still alive, my mother isn't. My father's a clarinetist, my mother is a bassoonist, just like in the play. Um, and also I think that 
it, it felt to me like a story when I started working on it that would uh, need to access um, a certain level of uh, emotion in the audience um, and a kind of a depth of feeling in the audience because in some ways it's a play about loss and mourning, I mean sort of sad, difficult things uh, that words alone are not necessarily going to be able to get at. Uh, I, I think it immediately began to feel like something that music would um, be necessary for. Uh, so I started writing it in, in uh, sort of loosely rhymed uh, verse and always with the idea in mind that I would find uh, the right composer for it, and uh, I did. So how did you find each other? <laughs> <laughs> Mail order? <laughs> uh, uh, internet chat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chat room for foot-worshipping <laughs> theater people. No, just <laughs> um. uh, well, we actually, um, you tell this story. It's you tell. I'll tell the first part. <laughs> I, the first I, part, I'll I brought it up. to George when I finished it, George Wolf, because we had done Angels in America together and we'd been talking for a long time about finding the right project to work together um, again on. <coughs> and uh, I uh, brought him Caroline as soon as I was finished with the script and I said, I'd really like you to direct this. And he immediately said yes. And he immediately said, I know exactly who should play Caroline. And he said, Tanya Pinkins. And I said, great. I had just, I think this was right around the time that Wild Party was opening, right? 97, 98? No, 2001. 2001. 2001. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's never been. 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 It's said, I want Janine Tesori, and George said that's exactly who I was thinking of. Neither of us knew her, but we both knew her music from Twelfth Night and from Violet. So we sent her the script and waited for about a month and then got a word back that she liked the script but she didn't want to write the music for it and thank you very much. And so... That's so nice. Well, so tell Please. us the truth. Well, I, I, you know, they, they, they did, you know, it's scary when you get a manila envelope from Tony Kushner, so it took me a week to open it, number one. Uh, you know, the, the libretto was fantastic, but I do think that when, I, I certainly at the time, I didn't think that I would be the only one receiving the, the envelope. I mean, you know, there's certain naivete, perhaps, in that, but the, the libretto was so um, astonishing, and it seemed very complete. And it was, while it was rhymed, it, it was also, it seemed um, that it, it did not really need music to carry its message forward. And so I set, called the public and I said, I have a list of two or three other composers who I think would really be great for this. I think it's wonderful, but probably not right for me. And then Tony and I started working on another project together, completely, you know, an arbitrary decision. And, um, we, we fell into a collaboration that was really quite wonderful and had an immediate, you know, the hard thing I think about falling into a writing marriage is, you know, you have to really bypass that, oh, I love you, I love you, to that, oh my God, you have spinach in your teeth, look, you know, <laughs> right to that, uh, that immediacy of I really don't think this works, I think this works, and I think that in some uh, writing uh, partners it takes a while to get to that place of, I think, maybe intimacy where you can say something about each other's work. And we fell into it rather quickly. And uh, Tony asked me to look at the libretto again. And then when we talked through it, and Tony uh, did a lot, what I asked him to do and what he freely did was he would speak through the, 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 um, the scenes. And I had an understanding from him 
really uh, breaking it down of what the possibilities were and would be for music. So when the script came in the middle of the envelope, obviously there was much more collaboration yet to come. Mm -hmm. Did that script change considerably, and how much did you have the opportunity to to do that? How much was George's role in it? How much was Tanya's role in it? Since it sounds like Tanya started being... I don't know whether Tanya knew she was the first choice for the project even before there was a composer on it. No. Did no, you know that? No. Oh, no. Well, Thank we, God we did this seminar. We <laughs> 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 were trying to um, seduce Janine into doing it, and she was still sort of a little bit nervous about the idea. The f one thing that we did was to get a group of actors together to read it. Right. Were you part of that re first reading? You weren't. You, you came in when there was actually music. Although when we started writing music for Rose, we were actually already writing it with Vianne right. in mind. Um, uh, but Tanya read Caroline that first <coughs> read-through, right. so maybe we didn't tell you, but that was the idea. That was, <laughs> that was when you came in, right? Right. Well, yeah, everybody, you that was, so that was a together. terrifying day because they, they uh, arranged this um, reading with, I mean, amazing people, Andrew Kinney and, and Ben Shankman and Tanya, and they read it as a play. And I sat at the end and every single person after we were done just went like this. <laughs> Good luck. I was like, thank you. You know, it was very, very, uh, you know, it was a little bit um, daunting to, to do that. On the other hand, it really helped because it was a starting point where I, I began to understand, you know, it was uh, on, upon reading, there's just so much, there's so much richness in this story. And when Tony and I started working, basically the structure has not changed. The appliances were always singing. This was always the structure. It was 12 scenes and an epilogue. But when we started working together, the possibilities of opening up the music, of allowing the clarinet you know, to, to sound as almost a character, because one of the, the father, of course, is a clarinetist, and he expresses himself really more in the presence of music uh, as opposed to language and his presence. So that idea, the idea of counterpoint and people singing together and trios and quintets, it, you know, it had such a profound effect on, the, on the, the play, but the story and the structure was really always what Tony brought, brought in. In a moment, I want to start. We have a couple of short clips from the show that we're, we're going to play. Um, but this seems to be a moment to turn back to Tony and say, in brief, can you tell everybody what the show, the story of the show is? Um, I... Uh, it's, um, it's set in 1963 in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, the central character is a woman named Caroline Thibodeau, who's uh, an African-American woman who works as a maid for a Jewish family, the Gelmans. Uh, the, uh, Gelman, uh, the father of the house, uh, Stuart Gelman's wife, has died of cancer the year before. He has an eight-year-old son and sort of in a panic after his wife dies. I mean, I think it's in a panic. You don't hear this in the play, but it seems panicky. He goes immediately up to New York and marries his wife's best friend, Rose <laughs> Stopnik, uh, and, and asks her to, you know, I mean, ha he marries her, and she agrees to leave New York and come to a place that she's never been before, uh, Lake Charles, uh, the Deep South, at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. And, uh, and you know, he basically is afraid to, to be alone and without this kid. So it's a marriage that isn't founded on a kind of, um, I think, on either side, not necessarily on, on a long, deep affection it's, it's, or on love. It may grow into that, but it's, it's at this point when the play begins um, a very rocky kind of connection. The little boy is, has just lost his mother and, uh, and is um, 
has transferred, I guess, a lot of his, his uh, um, need for attachment because his father is in deep mourning and has kind of uh, drifted into the ether um, of music. Uh, and this little kid, Noah, has transferred a lot of his affection to Caroline, who uh, obviously had a good relationship with uh, the mother before she died and, uh, and who the mother liked a lot. And Caroline, meanwhile, makes very little money, has three kids at home and one kid in the army, um, is very uh, burdened economically, I think also burdened um, emotionally, and is having a really tough time. She hates what she does for a living. She doesn't make enough money from what she does for a living. She can barely make ends meet. The world is changing around her, and, uh, and she's sort of drowning in the middle of it and not uh, knowing what to do uh, to change her life along with the changing times. And uh, then there's a little change in the household rules that Rose introduces because she's obsessed with the kid's um, habit of leaving pocket change pennies in his pants in the laundry. So she makes a new rule, which is that if Caroline finds the change in the kid's pants, uh, when she's doing the laundry, she gets to keep the change. And that's really the plot. I won't tell you what happens. You have to buy a ticket. Well, that's, that's a perfect setup for the scene we're going to look at with, um, with Tanya and Vianne, uh, a scene from Carolina Change. So I guess Mr. Gelman has to learn the rule. He loses any change he leaves, and you can keep it just like Noah's. You can keep it just like Noah's. I don't want it. I I ain't some rag pig, I ain't some jackdaw. I don't want your husband's money. No, Got a lot of laundry left, so excuse it. me, Mrs. Gelman. From now on, I'll check every pocket, put the money in the bleach cup. Yes, and Noah's yours as well. Oh, I never leave my money in my pockets. My father would have whooped me, smacked me. If I find money now, I put it in the bleach cup, and you people do whatever you want with it. Take the dough, money, Mrs. Stop bothering me with it. You need anything else? You need anything, anything, anything else? Do me a second. I got to iron now, iron now, iron now. We crap in here and there's nowhere. So please get out so my arm can swing with this hot iron and not hit nobody. It's, it's always wonderful watching the actors who haven't even necessarily seen these films before. <laughs> and apparently we're lucky that the microphones are wired to the end. Um, what that scene clearly shows for people who, who haven't had the opportunity to see Carolina Change yet is that this is not typical musical comedy. It is a musical. It is indeed uh, almost entirely through song musical with very little spoken dialogue. I'm curious, uh, Janine, when you came to this script, how did you go about deciding on the musical idioms? You quote many different musical styles in the show, and I'm wondering how you approached that. Well, we, um, Tony and I talked about it for a while. There had to be a lot of, you know, more than any other piece that I've done, there, was a, there were a lot of uh, a lot of talking and meeting and going through kind of every beat because as George said, I mean he was he was very astute in the comments that we we put people in a kind of meter or rhythm prison and we make decisions about the way that they're going to play a, an acting beat by just saying it's going to be in three or it's going to be in a waltz time or in this. So we had to be very clear about what we were doing so that they could follow through 
in acting because it's recitative, which, uh, you know, there's, as you said, there's very little spoken dialogue. And for it to be authentic would mean that we would have to know exactly what we wanted to do. Um, that said, a lot of the styles, this time in America in 63, was a, a point where every, a lot of uh, styles, especially in this household, were veering toward one point. There was a, uh, this, this household has the legacy of slavery in it, so therefore you have the musical beat that's coming from Africa across the, this ocean to the south, the labors of, uh, you know, the beat of field tolerant work song and spiritual and that kind of lament that's, that's slowly has, has turned to the blues and R&B and pop. And what's popping through the radio for Tanya, which is in this hot, you know, heated little basement, is, is this, this glamorous music of possibilities of these girl groups. You know, Martha and the Vandellas with their, with their you know, this, this incredibly produced look and the sound, um, that's what, what she's hearing. So we had that versus her beat, you know, the beats of, of the, this, the, the workforce that had built this, this community and this, this place in America, <coughs> plus the classical music of the household. And we both grew up in, uh, with a lot of musicians practicing and playing, and there's always music in the floorboards. If it's snippets or if it's someone's getting ready for a concert, it's also built on repetition, which drive, used to drive my mother absolutely batty. And so there are all these things that are permeating the, the floorboards, the, the klezmer music of the tradition of the holidays. And uh, we knew that we wanted to have everything, this kind of sonic world present, so that when they traveled over, the first thing that Tanya sings, the very beginning, we like to call it our overture, <laughs> she hums something as she comes down into the basement stairs. <laughs> That's hers. It's her song. It's her humming. The very, very end of the play, when uh, Vianne says, listen, your daddy's clarinet, he plays something in this kind of lament. Da-dum, da-dum, with this very mournful beat underneath. So you've seen how one family informs the other. And, you know, that's really an intellectual exercise. But I think at the end of the play, a lot of people understand where the give and take of these styles come after they merge and perhaps sometimes clash. But they come away bringing something from the other that they didn't have before. Yeah, I mean, if I could add to that, the, I mean, uh, the music, the one thing that you didn't mention is that then there's this person from the north who has um, uh, uh, a very sort of herb, fresh urban, I mean, Rose's music is, is like uh, um, completely unlike either the sort of Jewish music, that's the, the, the sort of traditional Jewish music, the classic music, uh, or the African-American music that's in, that's in this house and in this world. It's a, it's a very um, northern, busy, urban sound that's, that's, uh, that's, that's completely different. There's this great moment, <coughs> I think, in, in the second act in this Hanukkah party, which starts out as a big Hanukkah celebration and turns into a sort of a klezmer dance and then turns into a kind of a wild klezmer lament when the father sort of kills the fun of the party by plunging into sorrow because it's a holiday, which is always when you miss people who have died the most. And he sort of falls out of the party and brings the rest of the party with him into this sorrow. And it turns from, Janine wrote this wonderful uh, lick on the, on the clarinet that goes from this kind of klezmer thing <coughs> and shades off into um, this, I don't know, what is it, it's sort of like a um, R&B or even earlier, this very sort of um, southern black uh, melody that has the rhythm of the south in it. It's much slower and sort of um, 
sly in a certain sense, and, and that goes into a whole song about something that's happening in the African-American community in Lake Charles at the same time. And it literally, these two worlds just bleed into one another, and it's a really exciting blend of stuff, I think. So with the fact that the music is through the entire show, I'm curious to ask Vianne and Tanya, because you don't have straight book scenes, everything is musically informed, how did that shape you creating your characters? Was it a stricture? Was it a guide? How did, how did that work for you? Well, for me, uh, I'm just in complete denial that I sing at all. Because <laughs> I wanted to sing in my next lifetime. Not in this lifetime. But you, but Vianne, or you the character? Me, Vianne. <laughs> Uh, so I just pretend like I do, like it's not singing. <laughs> I just say it. And how does that with, make you with feel? voice? <laughs> Somehow it, I embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, Janine encouraged us to do that. Actually, she hmm. told us from the very beginning that she didn't want this to sound like we were ever singing. It was a part of what she wanted to get to emotionally. Like Tony had said from the very beginning of his writing, he thought that it would the writing would engage itself musically and and Janine had told us from the very beginning she didn't want us to, she didn't want it to sound like people were listening to a musical that it would get at them at a deeper level by singing but it wasn't about sounding beautiful or or being perfect pitched or whatever she, it was the second that was secondary to what she wanted to get at and Thank goodness for me that pitch wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> or bad pitch wasn't a problem. Uh, so, and for me, it just, it was a great personal challenge. Tanya? Um, well, George worked with us a lot without music. We just did the scenes as scenes to see what would they be if we didn't have the meter, because meter really does uh, begin to dictate your acting. Mm -hmm. And so we had to find out what the scenes would play like, particularly that scene that you just showed the clip from. We had to find out what that scene would be like without the musical breaks. You know, where would our intentions go? So that was very helpful. And I think that it actually dictated some subtle changes in music where we went, you know, you can't give us a pause here. And she'd wise, say it just like that. <laughs> 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 um, so we did that, and I think the challenge um, doing it for me on an ongoing basis is that kinesthetically, um, I learn music, um, and this music in particular, it just would come to me. It, it, it's strange to say, but I probably rehearse less than anybody because this music just came to me. It just came to me. And so the issue for me in staying fresh is to not get stuck in a rhythm that my body automatically does because it's, it's, it's like a reflex. It's autonatomic now, so I have to consciously work to be in the moment every day and not just let these beautiful rhythms and melodies keep me going all the time because, you know, they become like breathing. Well, as we talk about rhythm and melody, I want to turn now to Hope and to ask this isn't, again, there aren't set musical numbers per se within this show. What was the balance of what's movement, what's actual dance, and how did you and George work together in terms of, of oh bringing that into the show? <laughs> how did George and I work together? Well, um, <laughs> I came into the show two days before the first rehearsal, so I didn't know anything. 
And um, my first uh, introduction was when we all sat around the first day and they sang it. And I was just floored because I said, oh my God, I, I had no idea what this project was about at all. And so, um, for instance, I'll start with the washing machine. Um, Janine has all this wonderful uh, vibrating rhythms. So I try to make it visual. Um, so her, her movements are very much like you would find in a washing machine, you know, with sex. <laughs> she's very, she's a very sensual washing machine. And so she just um, she a whole world So that's how you know you slowly begin to find out what he wants because he didn't know either. So, but he had more knowledge than I did. You see, so he became almost an assistant choreographer, which was okay sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the girls, of course, were like the Supremes, Martha and Vandellas, you know. So we had the wonderful rhythms to work with. And we had to stick with what they were saying. Always what the script, I always call it a script, what, what are they saying? And so the movement had to uh, enhance what was being sung. And so that's what we had to put in, take out, put in, take out, uh, so that we get to exactly what we needed. So um, people will understand it isn't just movement. We are really saying what she and Tony have written. And so that goes all the way through it. You know, but the um, my girls are wonderful. You got to come see my girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I remember one, one thing that you did that was so um, when we were down at the public and the um, the, the basement is set up because I remember when when Tony, you know, it starts with the page and then <coughs> it goes. It, you 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 just you're not sure what it will be. What will you imagine the basement? How will that work? A basement on stage and and then you see it and it's so magical and real at the same time. But then Hope and George started working with, you know, the, the washing machine and the dryer and these fantastic characters. And there was one day where the radio was up and they're beautiful women and they're sexy and they're stunning and they sing incredibly well. But what they're saying is, you know, it, it, you, it's, it's a very strange because you think you know. You think you know this group. And then they bust the plane. Remember the one day where you had them go around the pipes or mm -hmm. lean into her. And so the radio, it's slowly, they, they start invading this yeah, space. Yeah, because we hadn't. Before. They hadn't, and they were hanging back, and so it was almost like this two-dimensional room. And then one day, Hope and George were saying, no, you have to reach into her. And so you have this appliance that you think you know, you think you've seen, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, these, you know, these things come alive. It's, it wasn't that, and that's when I realized that this is such on a different plane, not about that, but even within this story about how they're literally invading this space that you think you know this group because you've seen them before, but you haven't. And that was, as a writer, mm -hmm. it's a whole new, in a whole new level that I learned from what they were doing, which I think caused us to write in a different way to get the radio to in more. You know, it's her scene partners in a sense. Well, and they work yeah. in a, they work in a space only from about here to there. Up on, mm -hmm. that's all they have from about here to there. Mm. 
So mm -hmm. w that was a challenge also to make the movement and, uh, you know, keep it exciting and alive in a little space for, for three women uh -huh. from here to there. Yeah. You, know, you cannot go for, you can't go back, you just there. Mm -hmm. so One of the things that's really great about them, I mean, is the difference between Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and the Supremes is that they're, I think, between what Hope did and what George did and what Janine did and, and Paul Taswell, who costumed mm -hmm. them brilliantly, it's, it's a very subtle choice because they're not the Supremes, mm -hmm. they're not, you know, ready for the Ed Sullivan show. They're not mm -hmm. really polished and elegant and sort of cleaned up and in a certain sense deracinated <coughs> so that they're black women but they're sort of polite, acceptable to white audience black women. These women are a little bit before that. It's before that machine, this whole sort of Motown machine got set up and that sort of process look came out. So their dresses are really beautiful, but they're also slightly homemade. And they're, they look a little bit like th those groups looked before they really found sort of crossover, you know, immense uh, success. And it's, it's that specificity of it that makes it, I think, kind of work and, and makes them also able for them musically to travel between pop sounds and then at some times, especially when Caroline is alone at night, she turns the channel from a pop, sort of up pop station to the blue, a blues station that's playing stuff about being lonely and sad and it's an earlier sound. And we, we did this show, we worked on the show for like five, four years and pretty much the whole cast has uh, been with us since the beginning. I mean, Vianne has and Tanya has and pretty much everyone. And we did this succession of readings that went really, really well, but they were all done at music stands, sort of facing out. So for the first three years of working on this, I think everybody, including George, um, thought of this as a kind of an oratorio. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of you, and it worked. You could sort of sit and sing and to the audience, and the audiences responded really, really well. So it was very, very hard when we started staging it to kind of forget that, that kind of immobile sung thing and begin to find a way I mean, that moment when we decided that it was okay for Caroline to actually look at and talk to these people, as these fantasy figures uh, in her basement, as opposed to just singing to us and their voices in her head. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a huge change in the whole staging of it. And one of the great things about George is that he's willing to say, I don't know. I mean, he's always <laughs> willing to say, I have no idea what we're doing here. I will make this up. <laughs> we'll figure it out. When I gave him the script, you know, the, is this a, a singing washing machine? I had no idea. I thought, I guess I sort of thought, you know, a, a white enamel box that would <laughs> sing somehow or somebody would pop up out of it. And uh, he said, I don't have any idea how to do this. And then he said to me, uh, go ahead, Hobie, you, you go over there with Carpathia in, in, in rehearsing. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, what do you want? Just, you know, just go ahead and do some movement. <laughs> so he transferred it over to me. Well, I cut it off with the singing frogs. So there are no singing no frogs. Singing. I'm putting an end to it. Were, were there going to be? Yes. At one point, there were supposed to be. Oh, there are all sorts of things. Well, no, tell us. Tell me because, and I'm curious because. But I will say one more thing. Though, right? just, that one of the things that George did do, I mean, and, and it's no help at all to a choreographer, but it was kind of, <laughs> I thought it was sort of brilliant, is that, you know, I really thought that the washing machine and the dryer, you know, I had this character that I made who spends all day alone, and part of her big problem is that she doesn't have anybody to talk to. She's sort of alienating people one after another because she's waging such a battle to kind of keep her anger at bay, and so she can't afford to have human contact in a certain sense. So she's very lonely, so she begins to have these, I mean, it's not that she's going nuts, but she spends all day with these machines, and they each begin to develop a personality for her. And I, I just handed this to George, 
And he struggled with it for a couple of years, really, and then one day he said, I think I know what they are now. And uh, he said, I think that the washing machine and the dryer and the bus are the ghosts of slaves. They're people who lived during slave times and died, and they've sort of inhabited these, these appliances. <laughs> and, I mean, that's not in the script, but it's a kind of a wonderful way to sort of start to think about them, and, and, and they they sort of evolved from that, but it was a, it was a beginning, it was a, a sort of a beginning way to, to stage this kind of impossible thing. I, I cut it off at the frogs, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm curious to ask, and I'm going to ask the, the actors. Um, we gave them to Sondheim for a present. If you've been involved in these workshops, how have you watched the show change? Not specifically your characters, but are there things that were in earlier versions of the show that, that you've seen go away um, that you can talk about? Tanya. Yeah, lots of things have changed. Um, you can talk about lots of wives. <laughs> no, Sorry. let's not. Well, we're going to look at that in okay. a little bit. Um, but, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> lots wife changed probably more than anything. Uh, we had many versions of Lots of Wives. Lots Wife is a song that would be the quote 11 o'clock number. And uh, it's a song where, you know, all of this rage is sort of uh, released and recontained, and whatever Caroline's going to do, is that decision is made in this scene. And uh, it began um, very biblical, very poetic, the very first versions of it. They were very beautiful, but I think we ultimately all felt that this character didn't have that vocabulary, where George particularly felt very strongly about the fact that she wouldn't have that vocabulary. And um, then we had a Lot's Wife last June that was my personal oh, favorite. <laughs> I'm still trying to get them to let me sing it at, 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 at some performance where we get to sing an excerpt <laughs> that's gone. And so I've been singing this song. You can sing for it at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk to you on that. I will be there. <laughs> 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 Not to diminish from Nitzlot's wife, but it was a very different song. Yeah. And for me, as the actress, I just love to sing it. Oh, and it I would sing it, it all was around. Totally the, the company's entertainment for, for the two or three years that we worked together. Because we would all be doing our stuff, making it all perfect and right and everything. And then Tanya would come in with a new Lot's wife. And we'd all be like, <laughs> 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 I mean, like every. Like, every Two weeks or so, she'd come in and perform this new number, and we would all just sit there and just eat it up. It was extraordinary, extraordinary experience watching how it, how it came around again and again. The, the problem with a number like that really is, I mean, building it, because I, I've, uh, you know, I'm in, in Millie, we had to write an 11 o'clock number, and it was very clear what it had to do. It was like, you have to build. You have to bring down the house. You have to start in the moment, you know, and... And there's, they're very difficult to write, but this is like an anti-11 o'clock number. It's a 10.30 number, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It is. And so musically, it's, you know, what, sh what, what Tanya does every night, which I've, which I've, what I've learned is that sometimes you can't have a certain thing that you want 
because it fulfills you as a musician, and, and you will absolutely be able to sing it. I'll play it for you on Monday. Okay. And, but it didn't fulfill what the moment for the audience really needed, because what she does nightly is, for me, it's, it's hard to watch almost, because it is, I've never seen, I mean, I thought I'd seen it in Rose's turn. But I've never seen anything like this every night because it's not just, I mean, what, what Tanya brings to it is extraordinary, but it's this astonishment, the evolution of a number, literally 17 versions down, that I think what George and Tony and the entire company, what we did is that we, you take the things that you don't, it's like what dare not speak its name and you put it on stage of, of uh, basically one person saying, I'm going to reduce myself to nothing and I'm going to do it in song. So as I would love to entertain you in a sense, but what I'm really going to do is <coughs> devastate you instead and still be able to sing it and have melody and rhythm and go on this ride. So I feel like what last, that last June version was, was musically more, you know, it was, it was something I think more fulfilling to us, but it had to go that extra level to just kind of, you know, leave you, leave one speechless of all departments coming together. To, to really torture Tanya. We, yeah, they really torture me. They left the music they in, the music with in no one singing sing it. it. <laughs> <laughs> she has to stand on stage and go all this Musically, just, it was just, a, it was beautiful music, and the music is still in the show. Um, so it, it, yes, it is. It's to torture me every night. But I, that was the decision that ultimately that was not what the moment was about. Well, was not about this beautiful song. Clearly, we're going to have to take a moment now and watch. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> watch a second clip. No, we're not going to ask you to perform it. We, we do no, have an opportunity. We're going to watch it. We're going to take Woo. a moment and show you a bit of Lot's wife uh, oh, from Carolina <laughs> Change. Open water, turn to wine, hope's fine, fine, hope's fine, hope's fine, till it turn to mud, and some folks go to school at night, and some folks march for civil rights, and I don't, I ain't got the hope, I can't hardly read, some folks do all kind of things, and black folks someday you'll live like kings, and someday sunshine. Just a portion of, of Tanya's extraordinary performance of Lot's Wife from Caroline or Change. Um, I think we should move off of that for the moment. <laughs> we'll come back to talk, to talk more, more about that. Um, I want to go back to this issue of, of what, what did change within the show. What, what things were there that are no longer there, not just how this number... You, had your, you had your own version of that within, at the end of scene 10 with uh, Mr. Stopnik, of course, which we changed. That yeah. was our very last rewrite. Can you we tell us about like that, 57 times. You, uh, that changed a lot, too, the scene between my father and I, up until like five days ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a brand new scene like five or six days ago, I guess. And, uh, but I think, it, I think, you know, it's finding its legs even now. It gets, it gets easier and easier and easier and easier. Harder and harder to do every day, which is appropriate because it gets deeper and deeper and reveals more and more within 
within what you what we finally come to, and it does feel like a scene. It's actually it's interesting because it was um, it wasn't in the original script, mm. and uh, when the very first workshop when I was working uh, talking to Vianne about the character about Rose, who sets this rule up that eventually causes some pretty big problems, and uh, we were talking and I was explaining that in fact, although um, it's not something that she does consciously the decision that she makes actually changes the household around in a way that finally for the little kid's sake works out for the best because Caroline doesn't want to be his mother, she's not his mother Rose has married his father and is now his mother and he's going to have to deal with that so she sort of steps in and, and breaks up this relationship although she doesn't do it consciously, she doesn't realize what she's doing when she does it and it, the, this is a scene where her father comes in and says I think this is what you did not accusatorily, but just to sort of say it. And I didn't have that scene in the original script, but I was explaining to Vianne that, that actually this is the way it works out in the play. And I suddenly thought, oh, there should be a scene that, where that's talked about. So I wrote a very long scene in remorseless, relentless rhyme verse, a kind of Dr. Seuss, Marxist Dr. <laughs> Seuss uh, <laughs> thing, and then Janine tried to make that work, and then we, so anyway. But it feels it feels good now. It really does. It really feels good. Green eggs, no ham. It works. But but when I what I was saying before that was that this is talking about George things that were there not scripturally but but physically we actually had much more of a of a of a realistic stage thing going on, and one day George would just come in and say, "Okay, lose the living room." Yeah. You know, and we'd all like stand up off the couch <laughs> and it would and go, away. go away. <laughs> and then we're and then we're left with with nothing to hold on to. It's pretty amazing uh, how he does that. But it works. And and all of a sudden you realize that what he's going for is that change is so happening in the moment that the house is literally coming down. The house is the house and the chairs and the physical things, the physical life that actually defined someone's uh, existence um, are going away, and there you are, yet left on an empty stage with nothing, and yet that's when the seeds of growth start, <coughs> supposedly, in my in my feeling, start happening. It starts to redefine itself, a new life, or change. So it was very effective that the loss of those uh, living rooms and kitchens and <laughs> chairs and props, <laughs> <laughs> and all you're left with then is literally leaves you with a square of light that's about this big. It, so you, you then get squozen, hello, <laughs> that's why I'm an actress, not a writer, to, into, the, into a lighting thing. So mm -hmm. even your space gets taken away. And, and my father and I end up having that scene in a square that's about as, um, like twice the size of this little table here. And we're stuck there without anywhere we can't move out of it so it has to be dealt with like this well it's event you know what what hope was saying is those that's the space the women always had in the basement but mm -hmm. ha while you get you, that change happens <coughs> when you get limitations they come out the radio comes out for the first time at the end of the act and is freed of their space mm -hmm. so it's like you know you have to see i know this i've never said this about anything i've done but you have to see this thing three or four times to really understand on right. how many levels. And then you get a toaster if you see it three times. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's so, because there's so much happening on it, it spatially and through the text, through the music, through the acting, that I've had to watch it so many times myself to really understand on a, on a level of what's going Although on. Although I think 
lest we do damage to our box office, it's not actually, I mean, I think you can come and see it once or <laughs> twice <laughs> and enjoy it. Yeah. 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 I said you get everything on one viewing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Does the toaster sing? <laughs> <laughs> no, but people have been coming back. I mean, that's what sold it out at the right. public, is that people come back three or four times because it is so texturally rich that every time you come, you get something else. To me, it's like reading you know, don't take offense because she's one of my favorite writers. It's like reading J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books. You know, you go back and you reread them and you see how she did it to you. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's just, it's fabulous because she still can do it to you, but you go back and you're like, oh, that was the setup for three books down the road. And, mm -hmm. and so there's this exciting thing of then finding out how you got got, and then you come back again the next time, you're like, oh, but I didn't get that. You know, it, there are just that many levels going on. Well, there is a quality to the show that I found so extraordinary, which is that on the one hand, it is dealing with class, race. It's set at the time when President Kennedy was killed, yet there is a fable-like quality to it that, that I found so remarkable. And I, I couldn't help but wonder, given the, the anthropomorphized uh, appliances, <laughs> you also recently worked on a children's book. And is... This is one of those stabs in the dark that may go flat, but was there any relationship to the idea of, as you thought about how you wrote for children, a simplicity in this writing? Well, I mean, the children's book is with Maurice Sendak, and I've been um, uh, a fan of Maurice Sendak's for my entire life, and uh, actually a close friend of his for the last ten years, and, and working with him on this book was an amazing experience. And there are things in the play that are absolutely Sendakian. I mean, the thing that everybody mentions is the moon, because the moon is so important in all of Maurice's books. And there's a singing moon in Caroline, and I, I think that's, you know, directly a direct ripoff. He doesn't seem to mind. He really likes Caroline. <laughs> but, um, in fact, it's the first thing that I ever wrote that he, uh, when it was just a script before the music, uh, and I sent it to him. I mean, he likes my work, I think, but he really loved Caroline when I said it to him. It was just like, oh, this is great. And he was very excited. And then he came to see it, and I was nervous because he's incredibly musically sophisticated and not a musical theater person. I mean, he's opera and very, very serious music. And he just adored it. Uh, so I think it, there's, a, there's a real connection there. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's also one of the places that we connect. I don't have any kids, but I love kids, and I'm fascinated by kids. And Janine has a daughter, and and there's a and it's a story that's not f told from a child's perspective, but in a certain sense, the kids own. I mean, we hand the entire first act over to them for the last 20 minutes of the first act. They, the Caroline's kids and Noah come in and and sort of take over the play for a little while and send it into outer space. And there's a I think that there's and and then it turns out that that's actually very deeply a part of what the play is about because it's both a tragedy I think in terms of uh, Caroline's journey, but also it's a tragedy with a, with, a, with a redemptive point, which is that it's not sacrifice in vain or sacrifice because life is futile <coughs> or meaningless. It's sacrifice for the sake of the future, which of course for human beings is, you know, the next generation. And in the case of, of the African-American Civil Rights Movement, <coughs> was very much about enormous, um, unbelievable sacrifices that, that one generation and in fact, many generations made for the sake of those who come after. Uh, so it's, uh, which actually then I think redeemed the whole world. So it's, a, it's, it's kids have, are, are very, very integral to the story of the thing. 
We just, they're also kids. I mean, we, we um, Tanya has four, and our daughters have played together. And, you know, they, they have a really amazing way of looking at, at life, which I think definitely has just informed my life drastically. And I remember one, one day that my daughter was saying there was some house, and people had moved out, and there was some, like, the gardening hose or something had leaked out, and there was this little trickle of water. And she said, look, the house is crying because it misses all of the people. <laughs> and I thought, that's a pretty cool way of looking at the world. Because they happen, you know, the world gets infused with meaning and poetry, but it is simple and hopeful at the same time. It can be really, really dark. All those monsters that Ma Maurice writes about, who I've, and I've loved his work for so long, and I think it's where Tony and I also came together, because I'm such a devout follower of Maurice's, you know, willingness to look at the, the, the largeness of how kids look at their emotions, how they feel so big and don't necessarily have the language and they need to make things up or create part of, you know, what Noah does with Caroline, this game that he just enters into. And, you know, it was just so true to what I've understood from watching my daughter grow up, you know, and I love that about the piece, that it has it. Also that kids have this, uh, this paradox because they're simultaneously enormously uh, tough and in a certain sense kind of, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of quasi-civilized, especially when they're young, so they're, they're, they're fairly, um, uh, you know, sort of remorseless. I mean, they, they'll go after what they know they need and they go and they get it, and then on the other hand, they're also enormously vulnerable and fragile and you have to be very careful with them. So there's a, there's a kind of a, an interesting quality about them that I think, um, again, sort of spoke very much to the heart of the play. Four children for Tanya, four children for Caroline. Coincidence? Completely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you have extra children to sort of <laughs> she's, yeah. a real, she's a real method actress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a long workshop period, so, yeah. Yeah. so you had the time. Um, I want to come back to the issue of space, because both Hope and Vianne have talked about space. Mm -hmm. And of course, this show did begin at the public. Um, did the space change? How did the show change because of the move to another theater? Well, the space changed a lot. I mean, surprisingly, the Newman is one of the largest stages in the city. So we lost eight feet. We lost four feet in width and four feet in depth. You lost in moving to Broadway. We lost space. Mm -hmm. and on stage, <coughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. We lost on stage space. And the public has a little lip that's probably, I don't know, 24 by 24. Um, when we came down here, we lost space, but we gained a foot at the end of the, of the stage because of it's a proscenium. So that sort of claustrophobic feeling of the basement was lost in that suddenly there was a foot extra space downstage, yet on stage we were completely cramped. So there was a strange thing of feeling too close in mm -hmm. places, but feeling like there was too much space because of this extra foot at the lip of the stage, which we never used at the public because we couldn't. We could only go out on a little ledge. And now we suddenly had it across the entire stage. And I think it necessitated both relighting because at the public you could um, visually because you had such a width you could have two scenes lit and open simultaneously which was also rich and very cinematic you really had to make adjustments and isolate in this space and you know we played a f what we do in five five nights we do in one night at at 
on Broadway at the Eugene O'Neill. In terms of reaching people. Right. And the amount of people. I know for me, um, that first few performances is about figuring out whether you play this mez and ultimately deciding no, you don't mm -hmm. play the mez at all. <clears throat> for me, uh, it was a, a huge difference uh, as an actress because some, I don't know how this happens. Maybe, uh, I guess, I don't know. In the Newman, somehow I apologized for, for, for as Rose. I had an, an enormous amount of apology in terms of playing my character. And somehow moving to Broadway released, somehow opening up that space released me from some, maybe it was because the audience was so close and I, and I have to do things that I felt were bad and wrong and that I had conscious, consciousness, consciousness about. And on Broadway, for some reason, the, the spaciousness of the magic, maybe, releases me from some depth of, of horrors and allows me to play on a, on a level that I believe you're, you're much happier about or that you've seen a difference in, uh, in, uh, in playing and not apologizing so much. Well, to pursue that, when you talk about apologizing, that, that the character is, and what the character does is so different from you personally. Yes. That you had a tough time playing Yes, that. I had a very difficult time. And for some reason, on the Broadway stage, it just, it is something, there is something magical that happens well, on Broadway. There's a lot of air around it, because I know that when, when we were, um, you know, I think that we knew on a lot of levels that we wanted the show to go on. We wanted to do some rewrites. But also, I think, um, you know, while it's scary to move into a space, this, this space has been freed. Uh, this play has been f freed by this space, which was interesting. It was almost like at the, the Newman, which is a place that I love, it was too intimate for the enormity of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I found myself doing this a little bit because it was, it's just a lot. And somehow when you have the height of the proscenium and the air around the story, you can take it all in. And it's, you know, sometimes when you sit too close to a movie, you feel like you're in it. You know, I'm just thinking, I feel like I've been cast in, you know, <laughs> tornadoes because there's a cow flying over my head. <laughs> but when you step back, you can receive it, you know, from all of this. And that's how I feel about, you know, and I think we were nervous, but the very first time I saw it play, I thought, oh my God, I'm listening and watching it in a completely different way. It's also, I mean, with what Tanya was saying, the audience is five times or, is it, is it really that many? I mean, it's a lot uh, bigger at the, at the O'Neill. And at first I missed, because um, I, I absolutely agree, a at the Newman, we were, we were in this, you're in this sort of black tunnel, and you're in there with these people, and you're really like in the same room. Um, it's not framed in the same way. It's not lifted up. It's not that sort of magic box that a proscenium arch theater is. Those Broadway stages are so brilliant in that way. Uh, but you also have a thousand people, and some of them are in the mezzanine, and some of them are down below. And before, when it was 200 people, 300 people a night, everybody's sort of having the same experience. You know, if, if, it's, if it's an incredibly emotional show that night, uh, and one person starts sniffling and sobbing. It's like a cold. Pretty much everybody gets it. And there's a kind of an emotional, so there's sort of a, a singularity of, of, of audience feeling. They're, they're much more united. When it's a thousand people, and it's also not a downtown, you know, subscription public theater audience. It's whoever those people are that come in. They're theater people. They're not theater people. They're tourists, whatever. Uh, it's a much more heterogeneous audience, and the reaction is, more diffuse. It's, it's, there are a lot of, diff there's a discussion going on rather than, than a single thing. 
And that makes for a more complex, so it's interesting that you say, I didn't know that you, that you felt yeah. that, but that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I love what you did at the <coughs> public, too. <laughs> well, yeah. it was just a different level of play, that's all. Yeah, it's, it's a just different a character. Yeah. I miss that, them being in there with me, because the thing at the public is you really see them, mm -hmm. you see lots of them, like and, um, you know, this audience is overwhelmed and we get standing ovations, but what I... What was my lovely thing from the public was I could look out every night and, and, and see people wrecked, you know. <laughs> I remember very wonderfully one night there was a man, he had put on his parka and he had his hood up and he must have been about 6'5", and he was just like lapping mm -hmm. of buckets of tears. And, you know, I still can look out and I can see the weeping in the front row, but there was something lovely about... <laughs> <laughs> it was very holy because, you know, that people had come here and they were in a space where they felt comfortable enough to have this kind of uh, release. Mm -hmm. Hope you're not in your head. Is yeah, I, li I like the Newman also. Um, I'm also. I also am an actress and I still dance. And I like the intimacy of being able to almost put my hand out. And a lot of people, mm. they are un uncomfortable with that. I like it because I can communicate. It's a communication that goes along with an audience that is closer to you. When you have the pit, that puts them over there. So you're reaching further. Uh, so I agree with Tanya. I, I did like it um, at the Newman. Well, what we're hearing from, and actually in all the reviews. But this fits better in the. It fits better. It just right. breathes it's, more. It, has it, a yes. it really does, even though it's smaller. It fits better right. in this theater, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and that's, all, that's the major danger mm -hmm. with going from that rehearsal studio in, from the womb, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you birth it into this house, and you hope and pray, because a lot of times, and I've been in a lot of shows, it just didn't, didn't fit in the theater. Mm -hmm. You had a beautiful show, and it was like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. It just, and you lose your show. You mm -hmm. just lose it. And we were very lucky. Yeah, everyone definitely says the show fits better. And I think for most better. people, they don't want to go on that emotional journey when they went to the theater. So it's probably lovely for people to have that, you know, see it framed, and then they can have their reaction privately when they go away rather than sort of being forced into it because <laughs> you're in the play. <laughs> well, what you're talking about, interestingly enough, is not the physicality on the stage, but specifically the relationship of the performer's to yeah, the, the audience. audience gives. And how does the audience or has the audience influenced anything in this show? Do you all listen to them? Do you mm -hmm. respond to them? Can you talk a little about that? I think it's your job, you know, to uh, be there. It's very scary. I sat in the 10th row for the first preview, which in New York is, you know, you, you, have, you, you should bring a helmet. It's <laughs> really scary because I think it's very complicated in the process of previewing a show here. I wish it weren't, but I guess it's just the reality of the scrutiny, as Tony uh, says, is just so high, and people can be. My experience is that there's there are some incredibly cruel things that get said at previews, mm -hmm. and I don't, you know, um, I I don't know why that is, but uh, it's really true. I've previewed a lot of shows, as you have, and you mm -hmm. know, it's just wow, it's it's a deep experience. However, I do think that to stand at the back of a house and watch people have an experience as you have with this audience, if one were to stand behind you.
And it's not the same as if you were to be in that row, experiencing in a group of people the agreement. Because the strange thing about an audience is you bring a thousand people in and there is a, there is a sense of agreement of what's working and how people are listening. And I think really I find it very useful to sit, you know, right, right in the middle and, and just be, be sensing how, how people are, the shifting. And um, it's, it's very challenging to do, but I think it's yeah. necessary. Scary. Yeah, it is scary. No. Gee, we don't ever get to really <laughs> experience that. <laughs> <laughs> darn. Be, darn it. <laughs> Although watching it, that was <laughs> really scary. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Uh, just to pursue that for a minute, you've both worked on television and film, um, but when you do theater, you never get much of a chance to see what you're doing. How does, how does that feel different from, from what you do when you're on TV or in a film? I don't really watch anything that I do. Really? Yeah. Maybe years later, I go, oh, God! <laughs> you know, but I don't watch it then. Okay. I don't uh, want to start judging it. I'd rather watch somebody else do it. Mm -hmm. You know? Really, I'd rather hear somebody else read my parts, because then I can have that objectivity and, and, and actually find things. Like, I always love to have an understudy go on, because when you're in a part and you're creating it, because you're in the tunnel, there's things you can't see. and. To me, an understudy should always be better than the person that's on stage because they have the opportunity to not only steal everything you've done, <laughs> but fill in every hole that you can't see because you're in it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's a, I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's, um, there's this great book called The Queen's Throat by Wayne Kesterbaum <laughs> about, about opera singing. It's this wonderful story that I've told everybody a hundred million times, but uh, Adelina Patti, the great soprano in like the turn of the century, Edison goes to her castle in Scotland and records her, and she's literally the first operatic soprano ever to be recorded. It's like the very dawn of voice recording. And she sings into this big horn, and it's transcribed directly onto a wax cylinder, and then they play it back to her, and so she becomes the first opera singer in human history to hear her own voice. And, her, and she listens to herself sing an aria, I forget which aria, and then she says, ah, now I see why I am Patty. Um, <laughs> but there's a kind of a fatal moment in that. And it's, it's, it's also, I think, a real difference between people who work a lot on stage as actors and people who work a lot in film, is that you surrender that on stage. You can watch yourself on this monitor, but we've all seen you in the theater. And even though I thought what was on s the film was wonderful, it's not what you see on stage. And you'll never know what a Vianne Cox or a Tanya Pinkett's performance is like on stage. And an actor who, like both of you, has, dedicates herself a lot to stage performance, you surrender that, that weird ability to be able to watch what you do, which I think changes the way people act. And there are a lot of problems eventually. You can start to see it with certain, except for the, I think, the most ferociously dedicated movie actors. They start to their acting becomes more and more a gloss on what they've done before and they begin to become like a version of themselves in a weird way. It gets into this kind of weird loop. And I think with stage acting, it's a very, very different thing. And it's, it's scarier. It's much more of a, of a leap into the right. void. Well, it's yeah. built but not to be on record. Yeah. Right. So you yeah. have this freedom that it's, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. I mean, uh, George is always saying that, and it's true. Um, the moment, you know, you had so many notes, because his notes are really particularly <coughs> exciting to listen to. And it was just moment to moment, moment to moment. And in this piece, it's, it's true, because there are so many notes, and to follow through with that. And that's a moment-to-moment, -moment, you know, the end of an evening. Um, those moments are gone. 
they're not meant to be recorded. They're meant to be received, an audience, and then the next audience. And there is something, you know, we just did the cast recording, and I feel it's strange because we have frozen a certain performance in time. And I, I, I love what we've done, and everybody sounds great. And I'm almost afraid to release it in a sense because it was just one day. You know of, of something that we did, and and what what the people on stage, what these actors are doing, nightly are just they're mining, and uh, you know I've seen the evolution of these performances, and it's extraordinary what's happened. You know, just in the past two weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. But just, somebody came up um, uh, to me and said, <coughs> "When is the cast album coming out?" Because they've been waiting. They're somebody who really loved the show, and I said, "I think in the middle of June." I said, oh, thank God I'll be able to get the album and I can stop singing it to myself in my head because they're trying to sort of hang on to it by repeating it over and over. But in a way, that's sort of the point. It's right. the kind of the afterburn. It's, it's you know, the image after the, after the real image is gone. It's what you can pull back. And, you know, when we're all finished with this show, hopefully in a while <laughs> from now, but when the show is closed, you know, even with the cast recording, what was in that theater is, is gone. And in a way, that's terrible and heartbreaking to contemplate because we really love it. And then on the other hand, it's sort of great because it's, it, it gives you a task as a person. I mean, to, to talk to somebody, when I talk to playwrights now or people in theater now about seeing Charles Ludlam on stage, and I realize, I mean, these, the kids that I, that I work with now ha were not really, it were like children before he died. And you can't even describe what that was like, but you, you try to do it, and you try to bring them back. And there's something sort of really wonderful about that activity, about mm -hmm. describing it and, and, and trying to sort of like evoke it in some way. And that's also, I think, a task that theater gives us that's, that's, that only theater gives us. And dance, too. You mm -hmm. have to sort of say, what was it like when Martha Clark did that mm -hmm. stuff? You see the pictures, you know, pictures are interesting. The film footage is interesting, but when it was actually a body on space, mm -hmm performing art that, that, that exists only in a moment in time and is gone, it's just, it, it gives the community something to sort of work on, and that's uh, mm -hmm. an exciting thing. And it's the only art that's really the actor's art. I mean, you know, they can give us all the notes they want to give them, <laughs> and when we go on stage, the bear's going to do what the bear's going to do. Um, <laughs> it's yours. Yeah. Film's not yours. Your performance is completely crafted by somebody else, and they're deciding what's best, and they're deciding what story they want to tell. And in this one, you know, we are dancing with the audience, and the audience sets the show they want to have that night. I mean, it's very much the show that those group of people came in the room to, to have. Um, I love sometimes after the show, you know, people telling me their favorite moments or what they got out of the show, and it, I usually just sign, I'm like, mmm. <laughs> you know, people heard things, and it was like, Yes, that was there, but those were not the words that were spoken. Hmm. You know, that's what they took. And, and somebody else might have taken the exact opposite thing out of it. And that's like life, you know? Rashomon, everybody sees the same event, but they walk away with a different mm -hmm. story. Well, I, it, that's my experience personally, just now watching that. Because I, I own my performance on the stage. And even looking at that few, few minutes that we saw there, I don't own that. Even, and that's not been futzed with. I mean, regularly in television and film, you give over a performance and it's cut and chipped and taken and redubbed and everything. It, you really don't own that. And that has not been even, that's been not, that's what I did, and yet I still have no connection to that. I have no, I don't own that. Mm. I only own exactly in the moment what I'm doing with Tanya every night, and it, it's fantastic. 
because the only other option is taking a bus to Florida. <laughs> Which I think about every night before I walk onto the stage. I think, well, I could go and do this really risky thing, or I could take a bus to Florida. <laughs> sure enough, I get on the stage every night, so, so far. It's one thing that's a, that you just said that made me think of something that's really, I think, an interesting phenomenon with this show is that it's a, it's a play in which the, the main character is an African-American woman who's a maid. Uh, one of the secondary but very important characters is a little eight-year-old white boy. And um, one of the things that I'm struck with about seeing the show and having a reaction to it that isn't actually grounded in the show it's in some of the reviews. It's certainly in what some people, even people who love the show, come <laughs> up and say afterwards is, oh, I was raised by a black woman too. Oh, I had a Caroline in my, oh, I was, you know, I too had this wonderful uh, mother figure in my life who raised me and, and loved me and taught me what, and you listen to that and you think, but this show is actually about a woman who basically says from the very beginning, I have no interest in doing this with you, kid. <laughs> you can light the cigarette to get out of my face. And, and one of the last things she says to him, and she's not doing it to be cruel, is he says, you know, will we be friends after they've had this yeah. terrible fight? And she says, well, you know, and he says, and she comes back to work and he says in a sort of a dream scene, will we be friends again? And she says, we weren't ever friends. And she's not trying to hurt him, she's stating the fact. There's very little in the way, the, the connection is incredibly tenuous, but there's, it's such a powerful image in this culture. The, 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 the mammy, the maid who, who provides the emotional warmth to the, to the, you know, frosty, cold white people. I mean, that whole sort of <laughs> thing that we've developed as a way of handling our, our terrible and deserved guilt about, you know, uh, about, about race in this country, uh, so people come and see the show and they just rewrite it. It's just yes. like, oh. <laughs> or the critics who didn't like the show say, well, what they were trying to do was write a show about a really lovely black woman who takes care of a sweet little white boy, but they didn't know what they were doing, so the, the relationship is sort of cold and it's almost as if she doesn't care for that kid, which can't be what they meant. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, but you realize also this has been a huge lesson to me, a humbling lesson in the power of imagery. There are just some things. I mean, I knew when I started working on the play, when I showed it to George and Janine and I started working on it, we knew we were dealing with some very, very potent, I mean, a, a black woman in a white polyester maid's uniform <laughs> is like, a, it's, that's an image that is going to have a whole, you know, myriad of histories mm -hmm. flowing in and out of it. But I didn't quite realize how much for an audience, even an audience that's sympathetic and enjoying what you're doing, there's a lot it's of rewriting and re-editing. It's these pre-existing conditions, and that's what I didn't know. I mean, it's really interesting because when people are, they are so quick to, some of them, to call the, the score pastiche and not mean it in a complimentary way. And I just find <laughs> that so interesting because it's almost like they are not yet willing to take the journey of understanding how, you know, you write something in a style, but you synthesize it with a text of what you think you know, which are three African-American women who are sexy, they can belt their guts out, they can sing, they look beautiful, but it's not what it is. And when you really look at what it is, you have to redefine what you came in to see. It is not hairspray. It is not Little Shop. Mm -hmm. It uses the same iconic images and it spins them in a way. And you have to be willing to go on the spin. It's not to take away anything from those other shows, which are wonderful, but it is not the same. I find it very interesting how people are saying, oh my God, the, 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 the girl trios on, on Broadway. It's like, well, it's just not interesting to me. I mean, it is like just saying I'm wearing red and you're wearing red. I mean, so what? 
And it's just, just an uninteresting comparison in the way that I find what's, what's really fascinating is what these women are saying is it's political. They are making a political argument, this trio, this dryer, and is based on what, what people before them labored or tried to express without possibility or power. So we were taking these images, and I don't even know, I didn't know that we were even doing it. I mean, perhaps you knew, but I don't know if I was in enough control, craft-wise, to understand that the density of this political language, or to be the scene partner of this woman, necessitated an accessibility for the music so that people could really get it straight in. You know, just absolutely receive it and not miss a word. And, and so I just, that to me is the complication which I, which I love. But as, as you said, it's, they want it to be something else so desperately. But it's, that's, I think, why, why it's powerful, is that there's all these things that everybody knows, and that makes people comfortable. So that goes in, and then you've got this subversive thing where you're hearing these melodies and you're seeing these images that you have these fond, warm memories of, mm -hmm. but there's nothing fond or warm about this. And so, you know, my experience is people who come with no expectation have this, you know, life-altering journey, and that's the language they use. Then they're like, you know, I had a cousin who came and was like, yeah, I came in, and I was like, okay, there's the maid. What terrible thing's going to happen to her, and how's she going to turn it around and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and triumph? They're like, yeah, it's not that play. He's like, no, it's not that play. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I'm going, so what was his experience? Because he, didn't, he came to see something that's not on that stage. And so as he's watching, he's looking for the familiar. And the familiar's not there at all. And so if you're watching, looking for the familiar, you're missing the play. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and we also, I think, I think we, did a, we did something. I don't know, maybe I would do this differently now, but like the whole first act, it, it sort of plays a little bit with those expectations. Like the first time that you hear that Kennedy is dead, uh, there's this song that we wrote, the, the bus sings, announcing that he's dead. And it's really, um, in many ways, accessing that, that famous image of the uh, black guy playing the trumpet as Roosevelt's funeral train mm -hmm. goes by. Um, and he's an older man, this African-American man who sings the voice of the bus, and he's just a voice of complete mourning and grief, and he's the voice of the whole country saying, you know, the president's gone, what are we going to do now? It's an apocalypse. And, and there's nothing but great mourning for it. And you can feel some people in the audience who are politically savvy kind of going, hmm, like, why is this uh, black guy, because Kennedy was sort of good on these issues but not good in other ways, why is there no ambivalence in this? Why is this a sort of this great lament? And then the next, uh, like, ten minutes later, uh, another African-American woman comes out and expresses a certain degree of ambivalence. And then in the next scene, Caroline's daughter Emmy comes out and says, Ugh, I'm, I don't care. He was a white guy who got our vote and didn't do anything for us. So, uh, so you watch the, this uh, political issue become more and more complicated and, and complexified. But you have to then be able to say, oh, okay, it's changing. If you sort of get off the bus at the wrong moment, you, you, know, you, missed, you missed that turn right. in the road, and you just go sailing out into your own personal whatever. And you've set up uh, the final clip that we wanted to share with you very well, because we do have uh, a bit of... Thank you. <laughs> you've just... Um, uh, a s the scene of Caroline and her daughter dealing with that issue. So... Um, We'll take one more moment to watch a scene from Carolina Change.
I'm too tired to fight. You don't do me right. I can't do with no daughters as shiftless as you. Just some old white man. Oh. Don't care black man. Any tip of dough since when you say black man. You say I color. A Negro like he was raised up for us. I'll get up on He just ignore us. Same old story, mama. Wanna get no yourself to bed, girl? Who ever put a mouth me. like that on you? I know I didn't do it, Loud and God me. didn't do it. No, Some days I don't know what me. I'm gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> I find that scene so extraordinary because when Tony speaks of, of addressing ambivalence over the death of John F. Kennedy, we have certain expectations of what that would be. And then to hear that, even in that short segment, there's at least three distinct musical idioms coming together all at once. And I'm, I, I was going to ask you, Janine, about uh, how, you, how you tackled all of that and dealt with the sudden changes in the style. Well, you know, I've, I've been um, realizing, I think, in the, you know, we've, we've had to, I mean, Tony and I have gotten so close. He's really like my brother now, although he won't take out the garbage, but he's still <laughs> my brother, that um, we've, we've, we've just had so many intimate discussions about our childhood and, uh, of course, for me, parenting, as, as Tanya and I have talked about. You realize you really are one of those Russian dolls made up of the big one, the little one, the little one, the little one. Um, so we've, we've, we've had to really, uh, I think, address the issues of our parents in addressing the issues of this play. And one of the things that I, I remembered so, with such a vivid, um, such vividness is uh, when my sisters and I were trying to break through with our own musical styles, and I was so into Carole King, and said she was this pianist, and all of this something, and my, my parents would sing, like, don't fence me in. And they were just determined, don't fence me in. My sister's like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> and so, but, the, but they were just, they, it was the songs of their childhood, and they took such great comfort. And so, again, in our music, uh, it was this strange, the only thing that brought us together ever was classical music, because it was classical. It did not change, and it, wasn't a it didn't represent generational shifts. It was something like Rimsky-Korsakov, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky. It's what you've got. And so we would play that and listen in the same way. And I think that was one of the interesting things about the, the, the radio and what it provided. They don't have a TV, this family. And at that particular scene, Tanya's listening to a station where she's listening to the blues as they express what's going on for her, and her daughter switches it. And so that, that, beat, that beat is not mine. This is my beat, you know. Uh, uh, you know, just some old white man don't care about the black man. And she, at the end of that scene, you see, she switches it back. So it's like, it's just the shift of, again, what, what, what motor are you going on? And this is a generation that's moving forward. You know, how fast can we push it? How much can we do, you know, to, at this point, when you see what's happening with hip-hop and language and what poetry is, has gotten to, like, it's the generational shift of how, how much are we going to move this forward? And so I, we've, we were constantly toying with that, 
you know, that counterpoint of how we're going to make these two beats um, and literally the, the music of the hullabaloo and the twist, and, you know, um, uh, that she can sing to, but when they have a discussion, it's, it's based on her, her beat. You we're going to have this discussion based on my beat. When Emmy has an uh, argument with Mr. Stopnik, a political argument about Martin Luther King, it's based on Emmy's beat. You know, this really, really pulsing kind of hard R&B, which this Mr. Stopnik in his 70s from New York is, finds himself singing to. He's, he's like, you know, you just think, well, why is he singing? He's not singing R&B melody. He's singing something that is very much his. And I think that came from all of these discussions about how does one fit into the music that our parents played? And how, does, how do parents fit into the music that our, our, that our children are now discovering and writing? And so it was just so many discussions of, of okay, who rules? Who's going to rule here? Because eventually I have to give the orchestrators something to write. <laughs> The issue of generations and children keeps coming up in this discussion. It's, it's kind of fascinating. And there are so many children in this. There's a number of children in the show. And I'm just wondering, uh, having children around when you're working on a show, actually having them in the room, both in terms of <laughs> keeping them <laughs> together and getting what you want out of them, um, did that inform the show at all? Well, we taught Harrison to go blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, in case he was like coming out that he wasn't appropriate, his, his directions were to put his la <laughs> la <laughs> la. And we got, we've just been incredibly lucky. He sings lucky. a gospel number. They told him he sings oh, this honey. wonderful gospel yeah. number. Yeah, Harrison sings gospel now. Oh, it's wonderful. He didn't come in our prayer circle in the beginning, but now last night he was like, ooh, that moved me last night, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> so he's really good at it. It's so cute. Because when we did the first workshop, we had this incredibly great kid uh, singing one of Caroline's, uh, the first time that we were uh, singing through the show, and this kid who's now uh, got really tall and much too old to be in the show, a wonderful singer, who uh, played one of Caroline's kids, and he'd never been in a show before, he'd never done a workshop before, and um, there was a prayer circle before we did that one sing-through for an audience, and uh, everybody joined hands, and they were uh, starting to pray, and, and Jason, this kid, said, I'd like to do it. And he says, Dear Lord, uh, you know, please bless this uh, performance today, even if it is only a workshop. <laughs> 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 so he was learning very quickly. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> It's, a, it's complicated having, I mean, we got so well, lucky with the kids that we yeah, got. Yeah, they're very talented children. They really mm. are. And, and they were basically very well behaved. I think all the adults had to really kind of relax. And sometimes when they're being kids, they're just being kids, you know. And um, we had to be kind of not always telling them, shut up, sit down, go over there. Um, we really didn't have that much problem with them at all. But you George know, they also, were very he does excited. something in the room, which is so great, which he just opens it up. And basically, you'll have something. And I mostly work with directors, uh, you know, and their style would be to tell you what was going on. And George always says, what'd you think? What'd you feel? Mm -hmm. and, and so it, it involved them. And, and, you know, sometimes those kids have a lot of thoughts and a lot yeah. of feelings. No. And their level of honesty inspires the rest mm -hmm. of us. It really it brings it up because the upfront about what it is that's yeah, going on. I mean honestly I have talented kids. I have a certain set of more I mean we were we were I mean, you know, the, I think I have a little bit of a of a problem with the fact that these kids are um 
you know, doing this work, I mean, it is a little bit like child labor. I mean, I hate to say it, but it is. I mean, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're schooled, and I'm sure they get good instruction. A little bit, I sort of want to say, you know, you know, get out of the theater while you, there's still a chance. <laughs> you, know, run. you don't really want to. And it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, on the other hand, uh, Harrison, who's, who's nice. plays Noah, is, is not... Um, you know, a, ki a kid who gets up and does a sort of an approximation of what he thinks adults will find cute. He's an actor. I mean, he's, he's really, I mean, it's sort of weird. It's the first time that I always thought that acting talent was some sort of like post-traumatic residue that emerged <laughs> in your adult <laughs> life and you actually put it to good social use as opposed to, you know, going out and like stealing from people or killing people or something. And, and, uh, <laughs> but this kid has actually sort of showed me that it's actually, it's a, it's a native talent that you can be born with. I mean, just this ability to become someone else. There's a very happy little boy mm -hmm. from a really wonderful family who's playing a very sad little boy from a family that's in a certain amount of trouble and he just you know he has the concentration and the kind of emotional resources to kind of really get in there I mean mm -hmm. the, the fight that he has with you in the basement and the fights that he has with you he's like he's not kidding I oh. mean he's really you know it's fantastic, completely it? there it's really fantastic mm -hmm. he is there with you every single moment and you don't you just respond to him it's yeah. it's br it's really amazing although I, I do have one little tiny anecdote about it the other night i walk up it's the end of the show i think it was after a two show day and he was at the end when i at the bed the little bed scene um he was asleep. Oh. Oh. I <laughs> he was asleep oh. in the bed, and I had to wake him up to do our last little scene together. Oh my God! <laughs> I he was tired. He, never, ever he was tired, so I took a nap. It was no. fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. He was truly in the moment. He was tired. Right. <laughs> 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 Just like Rose to wake him up to say good night. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm afraid that unfortunately our time is just about up. Um, we, the American Theater Wing has been presenting these seminars on working in the theater for 30 years, and we do these here at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The seminars are part of the American Theater Wing's commitment to celebrating excellence and promoting education and knowledge in theater. Our other programs include our grants program to off-Broadway theater companies, our new program with XM Satellite Radio interviews across the country, and of course, perhaps our best-known program, the Tony Awards Celebrating Excellence in the Broadway Stage. Today, we're incredibly pleased to have had this opportunity to speak with many of the great talents behind Carolina Change. We thank you all for being here. We thank you all for being with us. And tonight, go out and see a show. Thanks for joining <laughs> us.